Hello everyone, this is Rising Above Shadows of Abuse, the weekly podcast for anyone currently experiencing trauma, pain, shame, guilt, anger, and wants to eradicate these negative emotions. I'm your host, Grace Opa. I'm a survivor of domestic violence. Welcome listeners to another thought-provoking episode on Rising Above Shadows of Abuse. News around the world on abuse. Thirtieth of March, twenty twenty two, Queensland, Australia. Reported by Australian Associated Press. Anna Clark and her children were strangled to death by her estranged husband, Rowan Baxter. Prior to her death, an inquest had heard that. Her estranged husband has strangled her during sex in November 2019. Social workers from Brisbane Domestic Violence Services, who cannot be identified, told the inquests into the deaths of Clark and her children that so many victims reported being strangled by their partners. The inquest heard that social workers thought Clark was not an imminent risk the month before she was killed by her estranged husband who touched the family car in February 2020. Social workers also regarded the police's response to Clark's situation as appropriate. Asked about police not being told that Baxter had previously choked Clark, one of the social workers told the inquest that many women spoke about strangulation. How that's treated by caseworkers depended on what the women want and whether they are ready to tell the police, the social worker said. There has been many cases of strangulation. Dowsing had gone up by 50% in most cases since Anna's death, she said. The social worker said some men, I quote, just intimidated while others start fires. The only intake social workers at the organization told the inquest up to 60 referrers were coming into the service at the time. She spoke to Clark on 9th of December 2019. Most women the social workers deal with are at high risk, scoring more than 45 on a risk and safety assessment tool. The inquest heard that Clark's score was 62, while the average at the time was 70. Another social worker told the inquest she saw Clark's car at her parents' home on 8th of January 2020, not long after Baxter had abducted one of their children on Boxing Day. Another social worker saw Clark on 4th of February 2020 and said she came across as upbeat and looking forward to moving on with her life. They were satisfied Clark was receiving appropriate support from police. The inquest was told about the need for secure housing for women in high-risk situation, seeing as 78% of women assessed by the organization are being stalked. Social workers said that housing is already limited with thousands on waiting lists. The organization is contacted almost weekly by women living in cars and not wanting to return to violent partners, the inquest was told. Clark was leaving her parents' home with her three children when her estranged husband, Baxter, got into the car, poured fuel inside and set it alight in February 2020. Baxter, 42, then stabbed himself with a knife, dying nearby. Clark died later the same day in hospital. 
Anna Clark's parents believed nothing could have stopped her estranged husband from killing their daughter and grandchildren, describing him as a true monster. However, Sue and Lloyd's Clark hope an unthinkably confronting inquest into the deaths will help others avoid the same fate. The inquest had been told there were systematic failings in Queensland police communication and training before Clark's estranged husband touched her car. Hannah Clark's dad said, and I quote, He was just one of those people, so callous, and used everyone as a pawn in his monstrous ways. This he said outside court. It was also mentioned that the parents asked the question, why this horrible tra tragedy? Brax told the inquest in Brisbane that mistakes were made and there was a lack of information sharing by authorities. She, recomm she recommended more specialized training for officers, training a multidisciplinary standalone police station so domestic violence victims could access specialist help and address a lack of men's behavioral and anger management services. It was also believed, and I quote, Anna really was a walking dead the moment she asserted her own independence and left Baxter. It was concluded this was a calculated and premeditated murder. Sky News, Wednesday 6th of April 2022. Reported by Alexander Martin, technology reporter. Seminar, Halliwell. A rape victim aged 12, who was autistic, took her own life directly after an interview with a police officer who had previously discouraged her from bringing forward a criminal complaint and subsequently failed to properly investigate it. Her mother had told Sky News. Semina had been raped by an older boy who attended the same school. She was groomed over Snapchat into secretly meeting him. Semina broke down after the incident happened and was self-harming. This led her mother to contact the police and report the incident. Officers from Merseyside Police Station in the UK, I quote, made Samina feel like she was an inconvenience to them, end of quote, according to two family members who were present during the interviews. No charges were brought against the alleged perpetrator who Samina named. It was reported from the onset that the police officer in charge was complaining about the various forms that needed to be filled in. And the detective said to Semina that, you know, basically it's your word against his. And do you really want this hanging over your head for 18 months? Because it wouldn't go to court for 18 months to two years. End of quote. Semina, who was autistic, had challenges of expressing herself to strangers. A rape incident wasn't reported in school, despite assurances from the police that safeguarding would be put in place. She was then forced to stay at home as she was not protected from coming into contact with the alleged perpetrator. After the initial interview, Semina and some of her family members, including their sibling, were often targeted in a campaign of online and offline bullying and weakness intimidation including several violent assaults. The police from Merseyside failed to fully investigate. They were threatened and said they were going to be beaten up and their heads kicked in. This was what happened exactly to Samina, who was beaten up three times, videoed and beaten up in school. 
During this period, two girls were prosecuted for assaulting Semina. Other incidents were not fully investigated. Her family members complained. Even though there were videos of Samina being beaten up on social media. The police did nothing about it. The detective said things had quietened down. And so if they had gone round, it would be kicking off things all over again. Three months after the initial complaint was made, during another interview in the family's living room regarding the rape and harassment, Samina said, and I quote, I've had enough of this and went upstairs. Her mother apparently thought what she meant was she's had enough of the police officers and was going upstairs to rest. But Semina had gone to take the medication that would kill her, consuming well above the lethal dose of a toxic drug used to treat a chronic condition. When the police officers left, the family discovered after going upstairs to see Semina that she had taken this toxic medication. She was rushed to the hospital and placed in an induced coma and suffered multiple organ failures. She died a horrific death because she had three heart attacks. Operations were going to amputate her legs, her fingers. But unfortunately, her body shut down first and she died afterwards. Her parents were heartbroken. Even after they buried Semina, her family said, I quote, they were not left to grieve in peace. The day after her funeral, somebody put out on Snapchat, which was a fake account, £10,000 for anybody to video and trash Semina's grave. And two weeks later, it was trashed, they told Sky News. The videos of Semina being bullied and violently attacked, showing her being dragged and pushed to the ground and punched and kicked by other girls were directed at the family on social media following the funeral as were messages celebrating Semina's death. Her family said Merseyside police consistently failed to properly investigate this harassment, just as the police force failed to properly investigate Semina's allegation of rape. Her mom said, and I quote, The police failings are absolutely disgusting. The perpetrator, his family, Merseyside police and social services are to be blamed. Everybody who is paid to safeguard her let her down. Not one of them told her she was worth their time. We've been robbed of a massive piece of our family. And for the last nine and a half months, we've been robbed of the ability to grieve that loss, said Claire. There has been police issues with digital investigations. Rachel and Claire Halliwell contacted Sky News following the investigation into police feelings in the case of Abdul Elahi, a prolific online sexual predator who targeted girls and vulnerable women. More than a dozen victims reported him to their local forces, but none of these reports were pursued until after Elahi was identified by the FBI investigating the blackmailing of a 15-year-old girl in the U.S. According to multiple victims, British police officers gave them the impression that it was they who were to blame for being extorted into sending intimate images of themselves. Police officers incorrectly told the girls and women they could not obtain any evidence from the digital platforms Elahi had used to extort and blackmail them. Studies from the University of Suffolk in 2018 warned there was an urgent need for training across police forces, as fewer than a fifth of police officers knew how to collect evidence from technology companies. 
Semina Halliwell family said Merseyside police responded similarly regarding the harassment of the family and Semina over Snapchat and they did not believe the police sought any data from the company as evidence. Rachel said, and I quote, the police tried to justify their actions or lack of them by saying Semina couldn't hand the phone over, end of quote, and countered this by saying Semina had offered her phone up several times. Rachel said, Seizing a victim's phone is not essential to the investigation of these crimes, as stated by national training material seen by Sky News. On training presentation from the College of Policing advises that, I quote, capturing a screenshot of a social media post regarding a hate crime may be sufficient to prove the offense. Seizure of the device may not necessarily be required, end of quote. Messages on Snapchat are automatically deleted 30 days after but the company can retain metadata and potential content if it receives a request to do so. Snap said in his advice for law enforcement, it could provide basic subscriber information, potentially including phone numbers, their IP addresses used to log in as long as police provide a username. According to Europol, these two types of evidence are the most important information that investigators can collect during digital investigation, while content data is only the seventh most valuable. Location data, as would have been established by the triangulation methods suggested by officers to Semina's family, was considered only the eighth most important type of data when investigating digital crimes. Samina's phone was taken by a Messiside police following her death and is still in the police possession. The family has requested that it be returned to them as it contains images and videos of Samina which are not available elsewhere. The coroner will hold an inquest in due course. A spokesperson for Snapchat was unable to confirm whether the app had received any requests for information from Messiside police in Samina's case. They said, and I quote, the situation is devastating and our thoughts are with the family at this difficult time. Nothing is more important than the safety and well-being of a community. We strictly prohibit bullying, harassment and other types of unwanted contact. Our global law enforcement operations team supports police investigations and we have the ability to preserve and provide content to the authorities when we receive requests for assistance, they added. A spokesperson for Merseyside Police told Sky News it was not appropriate for the force to comment on any of the substantive issues raised at this time, as we would not wish to prejudice the coronial investigation. However, we have and are cooperating fully with the coroners in this matter, the spokesperson added. The force declined the opportunity to discuss any of the family's complaint with Sky News. Spokesperson for the Home Office said, This is a heartbreaking case and our thoughts are with Semina's family and loved ones. No woman or girl should live in fear of violence or sexual abuse and victims should never be denied the justice they deserve. They added, this is why we are committed to ensuring more perpetrators face the full force of the law, overhauling our response to rape, including increased funding for victim support services. It is important that the coroner is given the space to reach their conclusions and it will be inappropriate to comment further at this stage. End of quote. Administrator at Stefton St. Mary's and 
Nursley Coroner's Service told Sky News the initial inquiry was ongoing and a full inquest into Semina's death will be held in due course. BBC News, 26th of April, 2022. DJ Tim Westwood accused of sexual misconduct. DJ Tim Westwood is facing multiple allegations of sexual misconduct by two women who say he abused his position in the music industry to exploit them. The 64-year-old was accused of predatory and unwanted sexual behavior and touching in incidents between 1992 and 2017. The BBC and The Guardian have heard detailed accounts from seven women in total as a joint investigation into the former BBC Radio 1 DJ. He has denied the allegations. Tim Westwood was an early champion of hip-hop in the UK and hosted the first nationally broadcast rap show on UK radio from 1994. The seven women who accused him are all black and they say they met Westwood through his work. Some of them accused the DJ of abusing his power within the music industry. Two of the women were aspiring to work in the industry, they said. They had agreed to come to London to meet the DJ who picked them up and drove them to a flat initiating unwanted and unexpected sex. One was 19 at the time, while Westwood was 53. Another woman told the BBC she met Westwood in his mid-30s when she was 17 and was a member of a band. She was subjected to unwanted oral sex after agreeing to meet him. These two women do not know each other. Some work in the music industry and fear repercussions with the DJ continuing to have a prominent role in an industry long criticized for its treatment of darker-skinned black women. Allegations about Tim Westwood's behavior towards young black women circulated in social media for quite some time. In 2020, Westwood issued a statement to the Mail Online hitting out at the fabricated allegations and said they were false and without foundation. Now for the first time following an investigation, women detail their experiences. One of the alleged victims, Isabel, was 19 and had already been getting studio time featuring on rappers' tracks as a vocalist. She was young when she realized she could sing. Due to her strict religious upbringing in the Midlands in the early 2000s, contemporary music was banned at home, but she spent Sundays singing gospel in church. Secretly, however, she would write her own music and dream of a future as a recording artist. By 2010, when she was a university student, she was continuing to pursue a career in music. She knew a national platform like BBC Radio 1 would take her to the next level. Tim Westwood was the main gatekeeper to get to the level of exposure I needed, she says. Isabel put together a mixtape of unreleased work and included her contact details inside the CD case. Her best friend, together with her stepmom, went to the nightclub with her. They managed to hand the CD to Westwood and Isabel said the DJ then aged 53 called her the next day. The two arranged to meet in London. Her family and friends shared their excitement. We were thinking that this is a really good lead at this point, she said. He wants to act on this quickly. Within days, she was on a train to London for an evening meeting. Isabel says the plan was to meet at Nike Town on Oxford Street, near BBC Radio 1 Studios. She says... Westwood was there waiting in a huge American-style car. Isabel assumed they were going to talk about her music over coffee or tea, a point she wishes she had clarified.
I don't ask where we're going, she says, when he started driving. But she says her discomfort grew as she realized they were heading out of central London. This is where I'm now like, oh God, where are we going? What's happening? She alleges at one point on the journey, the DJ tapped her hand to get her to turn and see that he had undone his trousers and had exposed his genitals. I looked and I'm like, oh no, oh no, like, oh my God, just don't say anything. Don't look, don't say anything. And I'm hoping that's enough for him to just not, she says. Isabel says she felt completely powerless and very, very scared. She says they eventually arrived at what she believes was Westwood's flat. She remembers it being filled with lots of records. She says she was led to a room where she refused an offer of a drink. He leaves the room and then he comes back completely naked, she alleges. That's when I noticed that he had got on a condom and had removed it from the wrapper and started putting it on. Isabel says she recognized the condom pocket. It was the DJ's face on one side. Part of a campaign Westwood did with Durex. I remember that very vividly because I remember that was kind of when my brain also started to shut down. Isabel described sitting on a chair frozen with fear. She says Westwood held her shoulders and turned her around. I knew what was going to happen at this point. So I'm just like, oh my God. And I remember being like hunched up and like holding on to the back of the chair like scared. He almost like tapped me on the back of my leg as if he wanted me to move my leg, which I didn't do. And then he sort of did. Westwood then penetrated her. She says after he finished, she, she quickly got dressed and sat waiting to leave. She says the DJ seemed annoyed when she asked for a lift to the station. Isabel recalls going over and over the experience on what felt like a really long journey back north. I just remembered feeling so deflated, so sad, feeling really ashamed of myself and bad. She says the encounter led her to drop off from her studies and music career altogether. Pamela's story echoes Isabel's. She was 20 when she met Westwood through friends. It was 2000 and she was working with young people who wanted to break into the music industry. She says the DJ invited her to do some experience with him at the BBC Radio 1. Pamela says the DJ told her he wanted to understand more about the UK scene and get a younger audience. She says the DJ in his 40s at the time reassured her stern Jamaican mother on the phone that her daughter would be okay heading to London. Pamela travelled by train from the Midlands and says Westwood picked her up in a huge American-style car. She says as they drove, he kept stroking her leg and touching her face. She kept batting his hands away. She says he wasn't concentrating on the road and was swerving so much that the police officer on a motorbike pulled up beside them and knocked on the passenger's window. Pamela says Westwood apologized and was told to keep his eyes on the road. Her assumption was she was going to be staying in a hotel as part of the work experience, but says the DJ drove her instead to an apartment where she remembers records and trainers and oversized clothes everywhere. At one point... The DJ started kissing her. He kissed her neck and removed her clothing. I didn't give him any kind of come on. There was no flirtation, she says. If you're trying to actively touch me and I'm pushing your hand away, that means I don't want to do anything with you. If you're trying to remove an item of my clothing and I put it back on, that means I don't want it to be gone. If I'm showing you I'm uncomfortable, why would you just not stop doing it? She says she remembered thinking 
she couldn't get out of the situation. I'm in London alone with this man. Now, if I try and get out of this, who is to say how he's going to react? So I submit to it. Pamela says she went home as soon as she could. She described the encounter as traumatic and disgusting. The work experience Westwood offered didn't take place. We asked the BBC whether any much monitoring of any work experience scheme took place, but they did not provide an answer to the question. Pamela later spoke to a friend about her ordeal with Tim Westwood. Her friend works in the music industry. Pamela is critical of the BBC and other organizations for the celebrity status Westwood's position afforded him over the years, a position she believes he'd abused. She says, and I quote, I would describe it as an abuse of power. She further states, who are they going to believe, this little girl from the Midlands or this big shiny star from London? He's on national radio, international. Westwood fronted the UK version of the hit MTV show Pimp My Ride in 2005 and was also given a drive time show on BBC Radio One's sister station, One Extra, which focused on contemporary black music. He is also known for giving a platform to new artists as well as getting some of the biggest rappers in the world onto his programs. Rappers like Eminem to Cardi B. He eventually left BBC in 2013 as part of scheduled changes in a freedom of information request. BBC News asked BBC whether it had received any complaints against Westwood during his time in its employment. The corporation said it could neither confirm nor deny whether the BBC holds the requested information. In a statement regarding the investigation, the BBC said, and I quote, it does not comment on individuals, but added that presenters will be expected to comply with strict codes of conduct. Another lady, Tamara, said she was also abused when she was 17. She says at that time, the DJ had absolute power. He picked her up and after stopping briefly at a radio station, he took her to a flat. According to her, he started to take down her trousers and underwear. Then he began instantaneously to give me oral sex. There was no talking. There was no kind of communication about that. It was just before I knew it, that was what was happening. Tamara says that at first she tried to push his head or his shoulders away, but he just continued. I was 17, he was twice my age. There was this kind of power dynamic. And then I realized that I'm in a position where it had already gone too far. I'm in a place, I'm already far from home. I couldn't know how to get home from here. I was manipulated into that situation. I was led to believe one thing when he had something else in mind. Working in the same industry, she says their paths continue to cross. She says Westwood had sex with her several times over the next few years before she cut off the encounters. I think it was almost implied by him that, okay, because we've had the first encounter, I could be up for the next encounter. And being young and not having the strength and courage to say, look, no, I don't feel right about this because I don't feel right about it. It just happened. Tamara watched the BBC's music Dirty Secrets documentary in 2021 and contacted the producers, asking them to investigate the DJ. Now 64, Westwood continues to perform at nightclubs around the UK and internationally, hosts freestyle sessions and interviews on his popular YouTube channel and has a Saturday night show on Global Capital Extra. Last week, D DJ Tim Westwood stepped down.
from his role. Further investigations are being carried out. Neela was an undergraduate when she met Westwood at a New Year's Day event in 2017. She told the BBC she says he described her as the pinkest girl in the rave during his DJ set and then later when she and her friend recorded a Snapchat video with him. She says he put his hand up inside the back of her skirt. She says she was shocked and felt objectified. She says the DJ managed to find her Snapchat contact and called her the next day to ask her to hang out. She didn't meet up with him. The BBC has seen the Snapchat footage and the images the women say were taken during their encounters. None of the women the BBC spoke to have reported their interactions to the police. Some say they are speaking about their experiences in the hope it encourages others to come forward and leads to the DJ being held accountable for his behavior. I quote, it makes it feel like that wasn't completely for nothing. Isabel says about coming forward. I don't just have this trauma scar for no reason. There's a purpose for other people to not have to experience it. End of quote. In Nigeria, Osinachi Uwachuku, a 42-year-old gospel minister who had been going through a lot of abusive situations with her husband, died in the hospital. According to sources... Her husband, Peter Umachuku, was fond of beating her and sometimes beating their children. She had four children for him. According to the gospel singer's mother, her husband, Peter, allegedly threatened that his late wife would only leave the marriage in death. The late Osinachi's mom also said she couldn't see her grandchildren for eight years and that she was never allowed to come for Omugwa a traditional Igbo custom for postpartum care by the woman's mother. The distraught mother further disclosed that her daughter's husband, who claimed that he was a pastor, separated her from her family. She further revealed that he never allowed her and the children to their house until pastors intervened. It was further revealed that Osinachi left the marriage for over a year, only to return after her husband came with the pastor to beg for forgiveness. The mother also said she told her daughter to leave the marriage, but Osinachi insisted on staying because the Bible frowns at divorce. A lot of pastors and spiritual leaders reacted badly to this piece of news. Pastor Mrs. Funke Felix Adejuma stated, and I quote, Marriage does not complete you. You come first. People should not confuse religion with spirituality. It is foolishness to stay in an abusive relationship. It is better to live than die. Some Africans believe so much in culture and stating if you are not married, you're not complete. Self-love is very important. Other relationships are secondary, she said. She further stated, love is blind, but marriage is an eye-opener. She quoted Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 woman was a woman who was independent, a trader, a go-getter, someone who tilled the land, which means an agriculturist, and a homekeeper. The woman in Proverbs 31 was also resourceful.
other pastors further stated women should always ask for help. And any relationship where you're not free is a cult and you should step out to safety. Everyone should be their brothers or sisters keeper. Submission is not subjugation or slavery. Ephesians 5, 21 to 22. Men were also advised not to abuse their wives. The Bible also states wives should be submissive to husbands, but husbands should love their wives. Abuse is not acceptable. You can separate. And if things are put in place, then there could be reconciliation. But if it's not workable, then the two parties should go their separate ways. In another incident, a Nigerian woman, Chinyere Emanuela Oguduru, based in Scotland, was born to death with her brother by her husband. This was premeditated murder carried out by her husband, Benjamin Oguduru, a 50-year-old man. Both had four children together. According to reliable sources, their marriage had problems. They were constantly at loggerheads. Chinere got admission into a university in Scotland to study her master's, and this enabled her to bring her family from Nigeria to Scotland. She finished her degree program and started her own personal business. The husband later left Scotland and moved back to Nigeria. They both had a house together in Lagos. The husband tried to sell the property, but unfortunately for him, he couldn't because the deed of the property was in the wife's name. The wife was notified of what was happening and she traveled down to Nigeria, leaving her four children back in Scotland. Apparently, the husband was envious of his wife's success. He found out that the wife came to Nigeria and he decided to kill the wife. He turned off the water supply, got a gallon of petrol and doused the wife and the younger brother, set them ablaze and locked them up. He ran out and started shouting for help. Unfortunately, the wife was born to death and died on the spot. The younger brother was rushed to the hospital. But before he died, he recounted what had happened and told the police and people around what had occurred. Benjamin Oguduru was arrested and is still in police custody at the moment. In conclusion, women should be weary of abusive husbands, vice versa. When you know your relationship is not going on well, and there's a lot of abuse taking place. It is better to separate or leave the abusive marriage and still be alive than stay put because of spirituality or because of religion or because of property or because of any other reason. And stay in a relationship whereby eventually you get killed. It is better to be safe and be alive than to be in a marriage and die there. Osinachi, Mwachuku and Emanuela Oguduru were killed second week of April 2022 in Nigeria. What all these tragic incidents have in common is that a woman or girls 
dies, whether at the hands of a man, because a man has driven her to take her own life, or she feels so disillusioned and rejected as not being believed that she considers life not worth living. Protection and safeguarding strategies sound good in the obligatory press releases and give the impression that something momentous is being done, but they are meaningless if nothing fundamentally changes. Is this down to a thoughtless lack of will, or is it just ineptitude, or is it something far more perplexing, a systematic and institutionalized irresponsibility that has been ingrained into a social culture where the lives of a certain type of person or persons, either intentionally or unconsciously, is less worthy of representation and support? If you've enjoyed this episode, Kindly subscribe, leave a review and comment. See you on the next episode. Bye for now. For more Rising Above Shadows of Abuse news, head to our Instagram.com page or YouTube.com page forward slash Rising Above Shadows of Abuse. And our email address is Rising Above Shadows of Abuse at gmail.com to interact with us. See you soon.